Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next installment of the Q&A show with Scott Horton. Uh, I'm Eric Schuler, and I'm going to be asking Scott some questions that you all have for him. Uh, Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Eric. How are you, man? I'm doing well. So I'm looking forward to a week ago well, you told us you were... I need to learn how to talk right. <laughs> I ain't talk good, <laughs> even when I'm trying hard. That's all right. Yeah. Hey, so uh, about a week ago, you were suspended from Twitter... And you told us that you were just gonna you were gonna call it quits. And so, you know, first thing I was gonna ask you, what have, what have you been up to since then? Have you have you kept your promise, or what's going on? Yeah, uh, it's been great. Uh, I haven't even I've gone actually a couple of days without even checking to see if there was anything important that came in in my uh, direct messages or anything like that. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's been really good. And you know, so I I didn't quit because I'm angry that they kicked me off. Although. That does kind of bother me. Like I'm supposed to beg them that please let me have my Twitter back so I can tweet for them or whatever. You know, I, I kind of don't like that. But that's not why I quit. Again, I know you know, but I like saying this. I quit because I really had a Twitter problem. It was taking up way too much of my time and effort. And in the scheme of things, in the time I have on this earth, you know how much of it was dedicated to this. Twitter thing, yeah, nah, it's there's can only there's got to be a limit, and um, and it's really cost me in terms of uh, writing and in terms of the show and definitely in terms of getting books read and in terms of building up the Libertarian Institute and all these other terms. So, uh, good riddance. Now I do have this Twitter thing. I mean this uh, Reddit page uh, for the donors, but even that I'm trying to only check it a couple of few times a day and not spend too much time on it the way I did Twitter. And I already got four books read. Um, we Meant Well by uh, Peter Van Buren. And I finished, I'd already started, uh, I was about almost halfway through, I guess. But I finished up um, Dan Ellsberg, The uh, Doomsday Machine. And so that interview is coming up, I guess, in a week or two or something. Um, but I already did the Peter Van Buren interview about We Meant Well. And then also I read The Hell of Good Intentions which is the new one coming out. I got the galleys version uh, from Stephen Walt, the uh, the Harvard professor, realist school uh, leader, and author of co-author of the Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, the article and the book. Uh, everybody definitely read. You want to know how they lied us into the Iraq War, man. Check that out. Um, but anyway, it's called The Hell of Good Intentions, and... I, if I can get him on the show soon enough, I want to tell him, man, you should change it to the hell with good intentions. You know, it would be so much better instead of, of, uh, but anyway, I mean, it's, yeah, it's an interesting book. I don't want to give it away, but you know, it's, it's a realist school take, which is a hell of a lot better than the liberal interventionists and the neoconservatives. That's for sure. Um, so anyway, there's that. And then also read The Skyscraper Curse by the great Mark Thornton. And that included a bunch of articles that I've read before, a couple of articles I've read before. But uh, all kind, all brand new stuff at the beginning of the book for sure. And I read that and it's really great. And it's about the Austrian explanation. I don't want to say theory. That makes it sound like they're trying to figure it out or something. But the Austrian school explanation of what causes that horrible boom and bust in the economy and how incidentally not coincidentally incidentally all the incentives line up during these massive inflationary bubbles for people to build or to try 
to start the project anyway to build the world record for the t- new tallest skyscraper in the world. And every time you hear not just that skyscrapers are being built, but the tallest skyscraper in the world is being built somewhere, then you can bet that before it's done, the market will have crashed. <laughs> and uh, it happens over and over again. And anyway, it's just great. And it's, it's um, as he explains it, to be clear, he's not saying the skyscrapers cause the depressions and the recessions and the crashes. He's saying that they're caused in the first place. The building of them is caused by the same inflationary bubbles that cause the wrecks. And um, it really is, Eric, you know what? I mean, um, I guess you're some form of financial professional, not to out you too bad. But uh, it really is right, isn't it, that among the adults out there in the world, that they really think that, well, what happens is the economy's fine, and then for some reason it's bad for a little while, and then it's fine again. And they don't see that the problem is in the big fake boom the uh, inflated prices by, you know, basically mo- caused by monetary policy rather than the growth of real wealth. And that that's why it crashes is because it's too damn high because it's basically fiddled with. Right. And so yeah. everybody has it wrong except the Austrians. Everybody doesn't get it except the Austrians about why the economy does what it does all the time with this boom and bust and all the terrible, um, you know, results of having all this monetary inflation, which is different than the price inflation on your shelf, but it's the cause of it. But anyway, right. So yeah, the great it's interesting Mark too because it's great. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting too, just because I and I have been encouraged by you know as right now, not to get too far up in the weeds of financial stuff, but uh, you know as the Fed Federal Reserve has been tightening monetary policy, ra- raising rates and whatnot. You know, you have seen more takes of like, oh, are they going to raise it fast enough to pop the bubble? And so, like, you you see, it sort of seems to me like that take has kind of made it its way into the discourse. Not that they're going to, you know, credit it to the Austrians of, oh, tightening monetary policy. That's going to cause a, you know, the liquidation of the malinvestment. They don't they don't say that. But there is seems to be, you know, we've been in this period of ultra low monetary policy. And when interest rates are really low, what do people do? They take out way more debt than they would if they knew like, oh, I'm going to need to pay 7% on that in a few years. Oh, I'm not building right. this. What are you talking about? Yeah. So, it, but I have been a little bit encouraged because I, I followed that news, you know, somewhat closely that, you know, you, you just hear more main, more takes that are in the mainstream of saying like, oh, are they tightening too fast now? Because, you know, a hike every quarter, can it, can it keep up? So again, it's not, it's not attributed to the correct sources just yet, but at least it's gotten a little better. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I'm well, it's good if they're calling it a lining. bubble. I mean, because they could be just complaining that, well, yeah, high interest rates can cause a problem without saying it'll end the, the yeah, smoke and, I, and mirrors I guess it, that we're trying to get away with for now, you know. And by the way, I was just reading um, uh, the uh, new David Stockman article, which is all about here's what's coming, the crash. And then what's coming after that? Donald Trump fighting like hell and blaming all of the bad guys. Who are involved, you know, all the Wall Street people whose fault it is partially, um, that he's going to go after them at the same time that the whole state is going after him. And, of course, if the crash comes before his reelection, he's toast, which is probably, yeah. I think, maybe the main reason that they're driving up rates now rather than any other thing is to make sure that it crashes on his watch in his first term. Not that yeah. I'm sticking up for the guy, but I think they hate him as much as I do, I guess. That's what I, for the wrong reasons, but still.
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, he did appoint the guy who's in charge of of the Federal Reserve, so I can't imagine, you know, just job security wise. You don't want to you want to be a team player if you want to keep that position. You don't want to be the person who, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise rates so fast I'll crash it on you. And you don't want to be the guy who's in charge when it crashes either. Yeah, because it would get so. I don't. I'm not sure. I would think that it's really motivated by that. Honestly, I think it's more of a true believer thing that they really do think the economy is every bit as good as they tell people, and they will be just as surprised and <laughs> disappointed when they discover that. Oh, turns out, yeah, you yeah. can't keep interest rates near zero that long and not have a problem. That's weird. Who could have? Who could have said that? Except all of us. Yep. Well, yeah. yeah. So there are these quotes where he was saying, um, uh, well, "Let's see." I'm not sure who he's quoting here, but he has he has Reuters quoting him saying that uh, I am not thrilled with the raising of interest rates. No, I'm not thrilled. I should be given some help by the Fed. Yeah. And, and he says, additionally, while Trump said he believes in the Fed's independence, he would continue to criticize the Fed if it continues to raise rates. So, you know, he knows what's coming. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. And of course, right before the election, he called it a big, fat, ugly bubble, but then it became his bubble. So, yeah. Gotta, well, gotta and he's taking way too much credit off. for it. You know, yeah, he's yeah. been touting all of his stats all the time, taking ownership of the bubble, you know, dro- yeah. completely dropping that old talking point that, hey, you know, I inherited a kind of shaky economy. There's some good things, but the fundamentals have some problems, right? Like he hasn't hedged yeah. at all. He's like, look at how great the Trump economy is. Which means yeah. he's going to own it completely when it crashes, too. You guys see Dow 20,000? That was all me. Of course. Couldn't Crazy. have been, you know, anything else. You know what? Anyways, In a related yeah. uh, topic, I want to mention real quick, and I'm terrified to say this. I really am. And I think this is why I don't really cover this subject very much and while why nobody does. And that is the terror of the IRS, which is the flip side of this whole thing. The IRS, I mean... Well, I'll just give you an example. I know a guy. He's not a political guy. He's just a regular guy. He owns a small business. And they came saying, you owe us $50,000. I always hear this. It's the same thing. Give us $50,000. Well, what are you talking about? I don't owe you $50,000. Hell, my gross was $50,000 that year. My tiny little startup business I'm running here. You know, How can I possibly owe you fifty from that? And basically all the lawyers, all the accountants, everybody told them there's nothing you can do and there's nothing we can do for you. You're done. You're toast. You just have to sign. There's nothing you can do. And so now he's a slave. As he put it, he has to pay them $1,000 a month for the rest of his life, basically, you know, to pay this off with all the penalties and all the this and that that they've added to it, plus all that he has to pay just to keep running his business anyway. It's just a small business, you know. Um just a a guy trying to make it in the world, and they've enslaved him. That's it. He works for them. His choice now is to either go, you know, well, I mean, what? He can't go work for some big corporation because that's not going to work. He's not going to make, you know, more or enough to pay them off. Uh, his other choice is to become a bum. And say, oh, my back hurts and get on Social Security and just say, forget it. Like, you win, I'll stop paying you and instead I'll start collecting. Because what else is he supposed to do? Otherwise, he's a slave. And here's our system. It works like this. If you succeed at all, if you make any money, then that's a crime. 
And you must fess up to it. There's no Fifth Amendment or anything like that. You must confess of everything that you succeed at to the penny. And then you will be fined a higher fine for the more money. They don't fine you for making not enough money. They fine you for making money. And the more you make, the more they fine you. Yeah, and, and the bigger and, percentage they take from you. Yeah, and if you're not a big enough company to have a whole legal department to defend you, then they're coming for you, basically. And yeah. you know, no, in all uh, my time driving a cab, I heard so many stories like this. You know, I never did a lot of call-in radio shows. It's mostly just me ranting at you like this. But when I drove a cab, I met so many people who had their lives absolutely ruined. I remember one guy, one guy owned a uh, lumber yard. Said he had a great accountant, a great lawyer, and he always told them, do whatever you have to do. Don't find any tricky loopholes for me, man. No clever things. Just pay them. Keep me safe. That was the standing orders to his lawyer and his accountant, who were good guys and did a good job. But that didn't matter. It didn't matter. The IRS came, and they just completely nailed him to the wall. They stole his business, destroyed it, fired everybody, liquidated it, closed it down, took all the money, and just... You know, like communists, just come and just <laughs> burn the thing to the ground. And, yeah. you know. Yeah, anyway, no, it's just like that. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. That's our system in America. Well, this is the system that everybody is, you know, they'll kick your ass if you don't take off your hat and stand, put your hat over your heart. Where do they come up with that one anyway? Your hat over your heart. Like your your heart, the muscle that keeps your blood pumping, the essence of who you are, the, the symbol for like all of your emotions for, you know your closest people and your faith and whatever that you have to tribute that to these people. You know, you've got to be kidding me, man. And, and, but I'm the kook like, Hey, Scott Orton, how come you hate government so much? Well, let me tell you about my friend, the slave who works for the IRS for the rest of his life because he committed the crime of selling some furniture to somebody. Like really, that's what's going on here, right? There's no contraband. This is just going into business. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. And, and the only reason the country, that I'm somewhat safe is because I'm so poor that I don't owe them anything, really. I mean, actually, they are coming for my ass right now. I'll go ahead and say it. I don't care. And, you know, I have a lawyer who's trying to help me, and basically all he's been able to do so far is put them off. But, but I'm not complaining about me. That's not, my, that's not the point. The point is this is our system where we allow it to be like this. And you got yeah. enough people going, yeah, because they think it's somebody else only are the ones paying and not them. It's crazy. And how could everyone in the country not be like, this is our highest priority. As soon as we're done ending the Yemen war, we are abolishing income taxation. How could it be this way? How could we tolerate this? It's absolutely crazy. It's seriously crazy. The disincentive to succeed, that's just from the base level of it. The entire way it's constructed is just madness. Seriously, it's one of those things like, you ever think that you're in the wrong dimension? Because it couldn't really be like this. Some crazy dream. No, you're right. And I, you know, so by training, uh, I'm an accountant and I worked, I never worked as a tax accountant because I wanted to be able to look at myself in the mirror. But I mean, granted, they're trying to protect people from the IRS. So, you know, they're both defending and taking basically a welfare position. So it's kind of a, it's a weird position to be in, but yeah, I always thought of, you know, I've, I actually studied this stuff and I'm terrified of, you know, if I 
you know, round something wrong or whatever it is. But then you think of and how complex the rules are. And then this is just something, somebody who doesn't even specialize in this. And this is what they're supposed to do and be tr- like, need to not get it wrong under pain of, you know, fines and all sorts of uh, terrible consequences if they do something wrong. And then, you know, if you're going to use the tax code to try and create incentives and this is going to be exact, like, yeah, it's madness. It's really uh, tragic. And like most things, it, you know, preys on the poorest people more than it, you know, yeah, rich people have a higher tax rate, but now nah, most of these things, they're, they're hitting poor people the hardest. That's always how it works in my view. And you notice how but, everybody is terrified of them. You don't see any movies. You know, uh, Eric Garrison at Antiwar.com one time told me there's one movie where the IRS is in it and they're the bad guys. And I forgot what it was called. It was something that came out in the 70s or something. And guess what? Yeah, they destroyed those people. They destroyed them. And then that's it. No one dared make a movie about the IRS ever again, ever. No one jokes yeah. about them. Nobody talks about them. There's no radio or TV show where they're like, the IRS. Because they know they'll come after your cousin. They'll destroy everything around you. You know, they're, God dang, man. Well, and it's interesting, too. I, I think, uh, I'm not sure if it was, I think it was maybe Tom Woods' show, but um, he had a running thing where he would want to talk to those scammers who pretend to be IRS agents for a little while. And of course, why do they pretend to be the IRS agents? It's because that is, you know, roughly the most terrifying call you could get, you know, short of like a family member dying or something like that. I mean, so that's how they're going to put the fear of death in you and try to make you make a horrible decision is pretend that you are under pain of an IRS audit. It's, I mean, it's smart on their part, right? Like, hey, you got to know your audience, but man, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's weird to laugh about that, but uh, you know are, what? These no, are, the these funny are the part is how permanent it is. This is just how it is, dude. It's going to be like this after we're both dead one day too, yeah. sooner or later. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, that's just how it is in the American system. Jeez, really? I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it should be. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. And I even if you even me. if you try to move, they're still taking it. All those uh, celebrities that wanted to you know move away. There's still the cut still going to be given because that U.S. is one thing. Actually, you know, they might have changed. I'm not sure. I, I'm speaking out of point of ignorance. I remember them talking about changing that. And it was I feel like it was something Rand Paul was pushing, but I, I'm not sure what the outcome was on that. So I'm going to I'm going to shut up now on that. Anyway, should we uh, should we talk some foreign policy, Scott? What do you think? Yeah, whatever you say, man. All right. So we had a few different questions relating to uh, the Iraq war. Um but I guess to get started Which one? on that. <laughs> oh, you mean the 25-year <laughs> yeah, war that's still going on? Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think uh, in, in your terminology, this would be Iraq War II uh, for the most part. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's kind of continuous. That's starting to catch but, on a little bit, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess to, to get started on this, could you kind of talk through – I mean, this is a big question, and we can take pauses and take it however you like, like in, in pieces, but uh, – you know, kind of just walk through the run up to the Iraq war, maybe the key events. I mean, obviously, I don't know if you want to start with September 11th or before that. Um, and then also what it was like to live in uh, America gearing up for war uh, during 2002 and beginning of 2003. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, one easy way for me to talk about it to start is I knew when I was a junior, I think a junior in high school. Uh, let's see, 94. Yeah, yeah. So um, when when I was a junior was when 
they first ran Jeb and Junior for governor. Jeb in Florida and Junior in Texas. And and I remember talking about this in math class. We had it was kind of a cool school. And uh so and I remember talking about, oh, don't you see what's going on here, right? They're gonna have one of these two will be a governor, which means one of them will be a second term governor in the year two thousand. Which means that, aha, the Republicans are gonna throw the election in ninety six and make sure that Clinton does two terms. That way they can have a Bush in there in two thousand. And then it's so obvious. They're going back to Iraq. Because the world's greatest humiliation was that George H.W. Bush didn't get to finish his eight years. He only did four before being thrown out, and Saddam was still there. And Bill Hicks joked about it, which I'm sure is what really got to them. But everybody joked about it. And all the tough guys like Paul Wolfowitz, right, who's never been in a fight in his life, said, oh, this was the big mistake. You should have gone all the way to Baghdad. Old Bush Sr., he didn't have the stones to follow through. And even to this day, people, it's just a matter of almost religious faith. Even that guy, Tom Strithorse, who I interviewed, who's got a great anti-war take these days, is still stuck on this. Yeah, you know, I guess if they'd taken out Saddam back then, that would have been different. No, no, no. I was always wrong. And... You know, so after the Iraq, I mean, we don't have to talk all about how they got us into Iraq War One, but it wasn't, you know, legit and honest. Um, but after Iraq War One, um, you know, basically in the and especially after the defeat of Senior, uh, the idea was that one of these sons is going to avenge him. I mean, that was just obvious. And they, you know, I didn't know what a neocon was then. To me, they were all just the Republicans. Um, but I do remember that Bill Crystal stuck out and that the Weekly Standard magazine I would see at the bookstores would always have Saddam on the front. And there was this kook lady named Lori Milroy who was always going around talking about how Saddam is behind all the bombings. Saddam's behind the World Trade Center. Saddam's behind, um, in fact, the, the AK-47 assassination of CIA agents at the red light in 1993 and um, behind the Oklahoma City bombing. And this is all Saddam Hussein's unfinished war with the United States. And I was a conspiracy kook at the time, but I never got caught up in the whole Iraq is behind it because that just didn't sound right to me about, you know, that Saddam is going to keep waging Operation Desert Storm against us, you know, or whatever. Just obviously wasn't true. But, um, you know, the Republican hawks were certainly always pushing that. And in fact, there's the famous clip of Dick Cheney from 1994 talking about, well, geez, uh, if we had gone all the way to Baghdad, we'd have been bogged down in the capital city and urban fighting and unable to find him for who knows how long. And then the Iranians would have got the south and the Syrians would have got the west and the Kurds would have spun off and that could cause a conflict with our friends, the Turks. And he's explaining exactly why not to do it, right? But why? Because he's at the AEI, and his questioner is saying, why didn't you go all the way to Baghdad? And so Cheney is being forced to defend. And so it was the, they were just waiting. They were just biding their time, you know? And the fact that the Republicans ran Bob Dole in 96, who couldn't possibly have won against Bill Clinton, and probably he was the only one who couldn't. Or I don't know, Phil Graham probably couldn't have either, but Lamar Alexander might have beat him. I don't know. But anyway, um, no, I'm not saying the Republicans have a very deep bench. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, um, it sure looked like I was right that they threw the election in 96 to make sure that a Bush could get in there and do the war. And so it was that obvious. And then, of course, we know that, you know, you have the clean break policy and the and the project for a new American century. So what people need to read there is the clean break. It's by predominantly by written by David Wormser, the important neocon, Dick Cheney's uh, foreign policy advisor later on. And um, PNAC was Wolfowitz and uh, Paul, uh, par- pardon me, uh, Bill Crystal, Irving Crystal's son and the editor of the Weekly Standard. He's really the ringleader of a lot of these groups. And um, so you had, you know, all the neocon think tanks inside uh, or outside the government who just came into the government with Cheney. And this is the group that Colin Powell, the secretary of state, who was George Bush Sr.'s man, had said they had set up a separate government. Uh, when he talked about the Office of Special Plans under Douglas Fife in the Pentagon, he called it Fife's Gestapo office, you know, meaning that they were outside the law, that they were outside of the form of the bureaucracies, that basically Cheney was running this separate network of these neocons. And so, which was, you know, really right. That was the way Seymour Hersh talked about it, too. Like, you had eight or nine guys who hijacked the whole government. And you had, you know, about 40 or 50 who hijacked the whole media. And so, you know, the neoconservative movement is really like 100 guys or less. You know, if you include some of the Kagan's wives and whatever, you know, it's not that many people. Uh, but they were in all the right positions. And, and you know, Cheney put them in there and, and put Rumsfeld in there as well. And um, so to someone who didn't trust him, you know, Peter Van Buren, and I think he kind of, you know, he backpedaled in when I confronted him about or, you know, contradicted him about it when he was saying to a man, the American people bought it and said, we have to go to war. Well, that really just wasn't true. Right. Like a lot of uh, a lot of libertarians, I'd like to say all, uh, but I'd be lying. But most libertarians and uh, certainly like virtually the entire left, including the liberals. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats in their majority voted against it. Um, the Democrats in the Senate were another story. But out in the world, regular liberal folks, you know, if they were readers at all, uh, they mostly were against it. Um, liberals and everyone to the left of them. Because, you know, on just on the face of it, it was, you know, a bunch of rich Republicans from Houston, Texas, who were, you know, all connected to these oil companies and were all corporatists and were led by Junior, the dumbass, you know, who's just Bush's son. Not that Bush was that smart, you know, but who was remembered as a bad guy and a legacy of that Reagan era and that kind of thing. Um, and so they just had such a negative appraisal of all those people going in. They didn't know about the neocons either. They just figured this is all just a bunch of corrupt oil wealth games and what have you. And so... You know, their their default was to not believe in it. But so they supported going to Afghanistan. You know, you got to go after Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But when it came to Bush, you know, and I had a lot of regular Joes tell me that like, hey, what's with the bait and switch? I noticed that. You know, I had a friend. I mean, and you had to know something about it, right? If you didn't know anything about it, if you didn't know that Iran was between Iraq and Afghanistan, if you didn't know that. If you didn't know the first thing about where to start learning about who's who over there, and you were just going by what they told you, then I guess you're lost, you know, if you leaned right at all. 
But, you know, I knew a guy who was actually a right winger, but or not really right wing, but a conservative. But his father was a something low level, you know, or medium level at the United Nations, like some kind of bureaucratic something. But so that just meant that this guy was raised with a little bit of geography, you know, and and, uh, just not not any kind of expert, but just a basic understanding of who was who over there. And as soon as they started talking about Iraq, he went, wait a minute now, come on. You know, Saudi, Osama and his Egyptian friends from left over from the Afghan war. That's not Saddam Hussein. I know the difference between these characters and what they're about. And that was enough. You know, and like, as I like to say on the show, all the cab drivers and bartenders knew it was bullshit, knew it was complete nonsense, you know, come on. And you know what? And and it was really easy. You didn't really have to know that much about it. You just had to think critically about it at all. Well, they went straight to Afghanistan after September 11th, but it took them a year and a half to start bombing Iraq. Well, if Saddam did it, how come they're waiting a year and a half? Saddam did it. How come they're dancing around with the French and the Germans and the Chinese and the Russians asking permission on the UN Security Council to start the war? They're doing that because the law says you can't start a war unless the UN Security Council says it's okay first and then it's fine. But so that's why they're doing it because this isn't a matter of responding to the attack against us. You're dumb enough to believe that, but they don't try to say that to the states of the world. Because they're not buying that. So in order to start the war, they're having to, you know, come up with Saddam's in violation of these weapons resolutions. And that, you know, we're enforcing world law and so you need to uh, give us the authority to invade that way. Well, that doesn't sound like self-defense to me. That sounds like, as Paul Wolfowitz said, the excuse that they settled on for bureaucratic reasons. Because it was the ones that the lawyers told them were the best to keep them out of prison. That they were going to be able to say, and the British were the ones who really demanded this, that they were going to be able to say to the lawyers that we really had a UN resolution to enforce. Without that, they were afraid that they would be war criminals. Because they were. And and that was the motive for even going to the UN at all, for that matter. But anyway, a lot of people didn't buy it. And, um, you know, unfortunately... I'm not going to sit here and name names about it, but it's an unfortunate part of American history that the libertarian movement and the libertarian party especially fell down on the job right there at that time uh, when their leadership was so necessary. But uh, not antiwar.com and not lewrockwell.com and not, you know, a lot of people. Um, Cato kept some of their good guys and, and not so much some of their others. And reason was a mixed bag. And, uh, yeah, it was a dark time, man. But so, uh, but one thing I used to do was I would read the Austin American Statesman and they would always run William Sapphire out of the New York Times. And I don't think that he was a former communist, but he was friends with all these neocons. I don't know. I don't think you'd count him like in the club, uh, but he definitely knew all of them really well and seemed to, you know, be totally in sync with what they were thinking. And he wrote an essay that was in probably late September of 01, or maybe it was in October. But it was before the war was, it was just when the war was starting in Afghanistan. And he uh, he wrote an essay called The Big Mo, where Mo is short for momentum. I guess it's taken from football or something. Where, you know, when you're on a roll, keep on going. And what he was saying was, 
bomb Iraq right now. Start the war right now. And let the heavens fall. Let the UN, you know, let the French scream. Uh, let the Democrats scream. Just go ahead and do it while you have the chance, while everybody's pissed off. And let's get this thing rolling right now. And then you could just see how, I mean, I was like, wow, you know, look at that kind of thing. Took note of it for sure. And then um, you could just see how the neocons were just rolling this thing out. You know, they had their narrative and, and you know, they basically just announced like, okay, it's going to take us about a year and a half to get all the forces in place. So between now and then, we're going to tell you every lie that we think we need to, to finally get you on board for this thing. And so then that was it. And they just told nonstop lies and they demanded that everyone buy into it. And on, on penalty of, you know, uh, complete ostracism from whatever part of society you're in for daring to be outside of the consensus of the American flag, which represents starting a war with Iraq now, you know? Right. And, and do you think the reason they waited that, you know, or they took that year and a half, um, to kind of build, well, not really consensus. Cause as you pointed out, it's not like they had it when they went, um, but to sort of build support, you think that was primarily, you know, the legal reason of trying to build up a plausible. Yeah, it know, was. It like, was Tony I mean, Blair and Colin Powell were like, we could go to prison for this. The law says like, that you can't start a war. Isn't that hilarious? I mean, doesn't it just sound so, so quaint to say that, like, someone at that level of power, they're going to go to prison for something? Like, come on now. Right. You well, know, I was like, just how thinking, could they actually think that? I was just thinking about, for some reason, today when I was driving down the road, I was thinking about the way uh, Tim Robbins uh, sent all the the financial paperwork out to the newspaper about the prison warden and makes him kill himself at the end of the Shawshank Redemption and how, why would he kill himself? All he would have to do is be like, hey, I'm a government employee. I can do whatever I want. He wouldn't be in any trouble. He could run for mayor in two years. <laughs> why would he shoot himself in the head? Like, uh, what kind of fairy tale is that, you know? A guy with magic powers who can heal you and a warden who's afraid of accountability. Not in this country. You know what? Sometimes they like to, you know, end those movies with a with an optimistic, you know, note. I think that's what they were doing. The suspension of disbelief. That's what they needed. Yeah. They wanted you to, to buy it. You know, it worked on me at the time. I was like, yeah, take that, Warden. But now I'm like, come on. He would have been like, so what? <laughs> they would have said, I don't know. I guess nothing. And then that would have been yeah. the end of that. Could have had a movie with unicorns coming in. Like, now that's more realistic. I can buy that. Ah, uh, gosh. So, okay, so it, it's a legal reason because they're, you know, they're worried about accountability, even though we both know it would almost zero chance it would ever possibly come. Um, it is part of it, too, that, you know, just in terms of the resource constraints of, you know, they can't wage, you know, going into Afghanistan and going into Iraq simultaneously. Or, did, or was that less of a, a motivator, do you think? No, I mean, they had a state army to fight in in Iraq, so they wanted to build up all their armor in Kuwait. And, you know, in the in the Downing Street memo, they talk about, and this was from July of 2002, they talk about, well, plan A is obviously, or it's option A, is the buildup in Kuwait and then the eventual just invasion from there and hopefully from Turkey as well, which didn't pan out. Um, but then they said option B is rolling start. And we'll go ahead. Eh? Who's surprised by this? What if we dressed up an American U2 in UN colors and had it shot down? 
over Iraq and said there, Saddam is in material breach of the UN resolution, and so we're going to go ahead and use that to go to war. And so they didn't do that, but that was one of the options. And listen, this memo was taken by Richard Dearlove, who was the director of the MI6, who was in a conversation with Bush and Blair. I mean, they were talking and he was standing there taking notes. But he was the director of MI6, and that was his story. Uh, that he put in Downing the Downing Street memo about what Bush had raised to Blair. And so I guess, and you know, I have it in my book um, where Blair basically had to say to Bush, hey, 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 I know everybody's really excited, but we have to go to Afghanistan first. And even talking to them like little kids, Afghanistan, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, that's what we have to do. And then I swear I'll help you attack Iraq, but not now. And like made yeah. Bush promise to wait in his panic, you know, because his lawyers were telling him, man, you could go to jail, <laughs> which again, yeah. you know, not plausible at all. But still, there could be a Chilcot inquiry yeah. years and years and years and years from now. And then you'll make millions of dollars being a, you know, uh, political oil consultant or whatever right <laughs> oh, that's hilarious yeah. and, and so break down the the motivation so you, you got bush um bush jr his we think is really just the personal motivation got to avenge you know father dearest uh over there or i think more like show no? him up i think he was okay. one of the ones who told his dad to go all the way to baghdad in 91 and that, so he wants he, that. Yeah, so he wanted that. Told, you, told so. you so. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's how you get reelected. You got to be in the middle of a war so you can do a, a political ad with a bunch of wolves coming at the camera. Vote Bush. <laughs> There's wolves coming at. You. They did that for God. real, and it worked. And he was reelected, sorta. I mean, mostly. But uh, but yeah. So that okay. was him and Karl Rove. Certainly was. This is how you get reelected. You don't want to change horses right. in midstream. Haven't you ever heard that cliche? Well, we all believe that. So that was part of it. Um, and then you got the Cheneyites, and that's more the clean break neocon. But well, Cheney, Cheney, first of all, is his, his own self, and so I think more than anything, he owed the guys at Halliburton because he was a terrible CEO, and one of the things that he had done was. I'm pretty sure it was Ingersoll Rand. I need to look this up. I keep saying this. But I'm pretty sure he bought Ingersoll Rand, which was this giant conglomerate. And they were like a week away from being found, uh, you know, liable and responsible for asbestos poisoning, meaning, you know, cancer and stuff. So it was some giant settlement. And um, so then, you know, that just, you know, completely, I don't, I bet they probably didn't have to pay it eventually, but it killed their stock value or whatever, right as he was uh, having Halliburton buy it. And so he was kind of paying them back by putting them on the army dole that you guys are going to get to build a bunch of big army bases. And this is how I'll, you know, socialize all of my failures onto the American taxpayer and use, you know, and, you know, this is such a great example too of you look at Cheney in the, when he was at Halliburton, he gave a speech saying Clinton is irresponsible for maintaining all these sanctions on Iran. We want to do business with Iran. You know, if they need oil pipelines, we build oil pipelines. And he he did the treacherous, traitorous thing, Dick Cheney, of saying that on foreign soil, attacking America on foreign soil, it, attacking sanctions. 
and saying we yeah. ought to get along with Iran because they're people and we can do business with them. But then he becomes vice president and he's a demon from hell, straight from hell. Now he has a Marine Corps for free to do whatever he wants to with it. And it, yep. immediately he does whatever the hell he wants to with it. How yeah. could he possibly volu- resist, you know? Yeah. Who needs voluntary transactions when you can take stuff by force? Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. um, and then, so now the neocons, I mean, some of them are just outright traitors. You know, Larry Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff on the show, uh, his chief of staff, you know, who helped lie us into war at the UN speech and everything, who's now been, you know, trying to make up for it ever since by being a good anti-war guy. Um, but he said, Douglas Fife and David Wormser, those guys were traitors, man. Those guys were, um, you know, I mean, not guilty of treason, but they were agents of a foreign power. That was what he said. They were not just ideological, hardcore, pro-Israel, pro-Likud neocons. They were there representing the interests of Israel, like full stop. There's an anecdote of Connelly's Rice shouting, shouting down Doug Fife at one point and saying, or not shouting him down, but saying, yeah, yeah, Doug, when we need to know what Israel thinks, we'll call whatever, Sharon, and ask him. Uh, and that kind of thing. But so, I mean, that was really, I mean, above all, to them, Israel's everything. And to the point that, you know, you can consider this an excuse for them if you want to, maybe, trying to be fair, that they, you know, many of them refuse to believe that America's interests and Israel's interests could possibly be any different. That, you know... Whatever's good for them is good for us in that General Motors kind of way. Everybody knows that, and it's not even in question. And then, so what do we do? I mean, Michael Ledeen had the most extreme take, basically, that he was always pushing, which was, faster, please. Let's turn the Middle East into a boiling cauldron. Let's overthrow everybody, especially Iran. And um, and let's, you know, smash the Middle East and, then, and make it better. And then you always had Paul Wolfowitz there to say, that listen, the future of mankind in the 21st century is democracy, and we are going to prove that you can create democracy even in, especially in the Middle East, and and even with Marines as your tool for building one. That you know, absolutely, we can do it because we're so exceptional and whatever. So this was kind of, you know, some of them really believed it, and you know, for mo- for more of them, I think it was kind of cover for, you know, the president wants to do this, and we want to see him do it. And, you know, Ahmed Chalabi had a huge influence here, too. He was the leader of the exiles. And, um, you know, he had an office in Tehran. His headquarters really was in Tehran. And, you know, he, he obviously represented himself first. But the Ayatollah obviously supported his effort to convince these American Zionist, you know, neoconservative, uh, you know, the vanguard of the Zionist movement in America, basically, that this will be good for Israel. And so now, you know, in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan backs, backed Iraq, Israel backed Iran. <laughs> you know, that's kind of part of the history, even even after the Iranian Revolution, uh, for 10 years after the Iranian Revolution. Um, and, but, and wait, was that because Iran was, or... They perceived Iraq as more hostile to to their policies, yeah, or they, Saddam was yeah, stronger they, at the time. Yeah, they, he was stronger at the time. They were more worried about him, and they still had their old friends. You know, the Ayatollah kept a lot of the old government in place. 
um, when it came to intelligence guys and military guys and stuff. So they still had a lot of their same friends in power there for a long time. And their, their Cold War with Iran didn't really break out until the 90s. But anyway, so, you know, a big part, if you read A Clean Break, and there's a companion piece, too, by, also by Dave Wormser, it's called uh, Coping with Crumbling States. And uh, this is the one that has the great phrase, expedite the chaotic collapse. Once we expedite the chaotic collapse to Syria, then that will put us in a better position to create the new future there and whatever. And so, um, so in one or both of those, I guess, uh, I forget now, um, he talks about how basically Chalabi has convinced him that we can put a Hashemite king in there. That would be, a, you know, a cousin of the king of Jordan or a brother or something of the king of Jordan. And that the majority Shiites will love this and or at least they love obeying authority so much that they will go along with this and it'll be fine. And um, and then they can even be used to, you know, keep the Sunnis from causing too much trouble, I guess. And whatever your concern is, don't worry about it. And then at that point, we'll have such a great compliance system in Iraq, doing things the way the Americans want, that that will impress the people of Iran, that they want to have a pro-American government too. And then, you know, that all the pressure is going to flow from Iraq into Iran. And David Wormser and Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz bought this. You know, the AEI, you know, American Enterprise Institute and Project for a New American Century and the Center for Security Policy and the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the Sabin Center, the Brookings, or I don't know if it was called the Sabin Center yet, but the Brookings Institution, Pollock and O'Hanlon, uh, all the think tank specialists, um, the only like quote unquote real legit think tank in D.C. that opposed it was the Carnegie Endowment. I forget the lady's name, but it was kind of a half-hearted thing. She refused to go along with it, but she didn't really try to stop it. But every other think tank, you know, basically went along at least the ones that officially take positions. But even, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations, I don't know if I read everything in foreign affairs that year, but, uh, you know, it was just like the Post and the Times and everything else. It was just heavily slanted toward intervention. Um, and it, the effort really was led by the president and the vice president. It was like, all right, let's do this, go team. And then the team was really excited to help, you know, but it really was. Uh, top-down effort and every you know, everyone else was basically getting in line and you know um, Leslie Gelb who was the president of the Council on Foreign Relations at the time later said and you know and this is interesting too man uh, I mean it's, it sounds honest to me and this is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and he says you know the pressure is on to just go along with what everybody else says you know just like in a professional sense but this is what we're all doing. Why stick your neck out? Why risk your job and position? And what you know what I mean? So here's a guy who's, who has a ton of influence, who could have really led an effort to, you know, I don't know, maybe even stop it if he was really trying. But that's the furthest thing from his mind. You know, he's covering his own ass, and that's it. <laughs> you know, public choice theory. Um, yeah. And and so that was it. And then. But yeah, back to the fear thing where, you know, your um, your uncle and your, you know, uh, sister-in-law, you know, can't get along ever again now because of the giant fights over war and torture and murder and all this stuff that the Bush administration basically put them through. They're 
you know, it was all a premeditated murder plot. It was all a conspiracy to start a war that killed a million people and had an incredible torture regime. Tens of thousands of people were tortured by the U.S. military there. At least thousands and thousands. Estimates and, you know, legit estimates in the tens of thousands were tortured in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, all you hear about is the CIA waterboarded a couple of guys or whatever. There's a lot more extensive than that. The military picked up all the same rules uh, in the way that they handled a lot of these people. And then when they got caught, they said, yeah, well, that's what you got to do. Isn't that right, American right? And the American right said, yes, sir, yes, sir, whatever you say, up, two, three, four, we're torturers now. You know, whereas before they weren't necessarily, you know what I mean? Like maybe if you'd asked if you'd really put them on the spot, they would have been pro torture in some circumstances. But no one had put them on the spot. Bush demanded that they all stand right there and support this. That, yes, you're damn right. That's who we are, and what we do. Oh, but it's not torture, though. It's not torture. But, yeah, it's torture because you've got to torture them. And you're either with us or with the terrorists, right, Scott? Yeah, and they really did that, and they made they turned the American people against each other so bad, and that has so much to do with where we're at now, with the pendulum swinging in all the dumbest ways, and making everyone hate each other so much. So much of this is George Bush's fault. It really is. None of this had to happen at all. You know, this was his project. And, and by the way, I left out of the coalition the oil guys. You know, Greg Pallast, I guess, has done the best work on this about. The oil guys, James Baker, you know, was the lawyer for Exxon down there in Houston. And their idea was to try to keep Iraqi oil from being developed to keep prices high. And because there was too much of it, it was too readily accessible. And they, you know, weren't necessarily going to be the ones counting on getting those contracts. Although they do have some up in Kurdistan now, I guess. Or they have. Um, But the idea was... To keep Saudi dominant over OPEC and to keep Iraq out of the game, behind the red line and off limits, for now at least. And it seems like if that's the standard, and you know, Powell said that all along, so if that's the measure, they succeeded in that. I mean, the oil has, a lot of it has come to market, but compared to if they had had a stable security situation, you know, there's no comparison, so... Which is really ironic, too, when you think of, you know, kind of Trump's narrative of like, what was wrong with the Iraq war was that we didn't take the oil. And, and you know, you have that whole narrative of this is all about, you know, oil companies. And, and in some ways, you know, like you're saying, it is, but it's not the way that people think about it. It's not that, oh, they're trying to take the oil and that's they want to secure that. Like, no, 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 no. Well, if you have a war in an oil producing region, you're going to crazy reduced supply and so you're going to drive prices up until things calm down yeah and so it's 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 kind of the flip side of what the kind of usual story is and then there's also the other narrative that goes along with that of like well why does the u.s need to be in the middle east and that's because well we got to keep oil flowing this whole time but what are you doing by starting a war in the middle east you're restricting the flow of oil that's what you're doing yeah exactly it's amazing how upside down it is Yep. So, and and now that is a big part of of this is like this grand strategy too. So part of it would be they want to be able to sh- to dominate the Persian Gulf forever to guarantee that they can get it. Sure, like you're saying, even though on paper it doesn't really work out, but at the same time they want to be able to shut that tap off. And you know, particularly in the event of a war with China, they want you know because China has virtually no domestic oil resources for whatever reason. There's just 
nothing under there. So apparently, um, so that's a big part of their thing. And, you know, so I mentioned at the top of this, the Stephen Walt book, um, and his realist take. So his thing, it's a very professional academic type look at this kind of thing. Um, and you know, very dispassionate, you know, just kind of analysis and talking about how, right. So we don't, have to dominate the whole Middle East. There's this idea that we have to dominate that region and be the dominant power there. But that's too much. We really don't need that, right? What we need is for Iran and Saudi and Iraq to sort of balance each other. And from his point of view, if any one of them came to dominate the entire or a huge majority of the oil resources of the region, then I guess he doesn't say, but he ought to mention... And in a way that it really looks like they're trying to, you know, corner the market and and put a stranglehold on others and stuff like that, that would be the place where he would intervene. Um, You know, but until then, we ought to do what he calls offshore balancing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying complete non-intervention. But he's just saying, you know, what's the opposite of we have to dominate this region? Saddam's in our way of dominance. The Ayatollah's in our way of dominance, especially now that we got rid of Saddam for him. Damn, that didn't work out the way Chalabi told David Wormser it would. And so, um, you know, now we got to double down on all these same mistakes. Maybe we should help support the rise of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State in Syria in order to check Iran uh, by getting rid of Assad. And then, hey, look, it's helping kind of hem in the uh, Iraqi government and their Iranian friends a little bit. And so maybe we're a little bit happy to see that. And then, oops, it turns into an outright Islamo-fascist caliphate with this guy Baghdadi on the balcony and bad PR ops. And so now we got to reverse all that, make them even more powerful, and just keep going on. And Stephen Walt is saying, look, man, he's saying, yes, we do have to guarantee global access to those oil supplies. Like it or not, yes, we do have to do that. But do we have to do any of the rest of this in order to do that? No. All we have to do is sit, you know, at Diego Garcia and make sure that Saddam doesn't take over at all. Well, that's not a problem anymore. And Iran is not about to invade Saudi or any kind of crazy thing. So just, you know what I mean? Uh, it's, right. it's unnecessary, even assuming the basic prerogatives of enforcing America's national interests you still don't have to be onshore shooting people and getting shot. None of this was right. necessary. And, you know, think about the level of lie that that is to the soldiers who killed people and died over there, you know, believing that, hey, I'm defending my country. I'm doing what my government says must be done to keep Americans safe. But that was, it wasn't that. It was to deploy this so-called grand strategy, which wasn't grand. It's just crazy and stupid and based on a bunch of lies that a bunch of exiles told a bunch of pro-Israel traitors in D.C. to believe. And so, and I'm not blaming Iran. I'm blaming the neocons. <laughs> you know, I'm not blaming Chalabi. I'm blaming the guys who believed him and did this. Um, right. You know, I'm not trying to, like, diminish their responsibility by saying, yeah, poor little David Wormser believed what he was told. You know, he certainly signed up to do so. Um, yeah. But, yeah, man, these guys completely ruined everything. And then... You know, just, you know, I kind of am critical of, of Stephen Walt because he's not nearly as radical as me. But on the other hand, he's, he just sets such a perfect kind of example of like, you could be, you know, an American foreign policy grand strategist with a 
you know, serious and legitimate Harvard based plan for how things should be and not have any of this going on. Oh, and, and accept, as I say, accepting the doctrine of we have some national interests, as he puts it, keeping any one power from dominating Europe, any one power from dominating the Middle East, or any one power from dominating East Asia, Northeast Asia. He says that at those points, we got to intervene. But the best way to intervene is by not intervening. The best thing that we could do in almost all these cases is back off. Otherwise, you know, we don't have to. You know, look at the grand chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski and what nonsense that is. That America, it's nonsense. That America has to dominate Central Asia. We do not have to dominate Central Asia. It makes no difference at all whether we dominate Central Asia. Whether China, Pakistan, and the Pashtun Afghans rule Afghanistan, or whether Iran, Russia, India, and their, you know, uh, Tajik and Uzbek and Hazara allies rule their areas or where makes no difference to Americans whatsoever you know other than it'll be a shame to see the backlash when we finally leave from all the phony structures we've erected that cannot stand on their own um, it's going to be ugly but uh, so we'll be sad about that what our government has done to those people but in terms of America a threat to Americans and whether we have freedom to live our life or not it's not it's just not true now, I'm not really sure why I'm supposed to care if China dominates Japan or vice versa, um, other than I wouldn't want to see war break out anywhere. But in terms of how that affects how I live in North America, that's not altogether clear to me. I mean, right. certainly not over the long term. But anyway. And so, so his plan is, you know, with respect to the Middle East specifically, basically, you know, have the U.S. Navy in the general vicinity, and if somebody tries to make a power grab, that's yeah. Trying I mean, to he doesn't even that say that specifically. I mean, he just says offshore balancing. Right. So, like, you know, the idea is, I guess there's there are ships nearby, but they don't even really need yeah. to be, right? Yeah, we could. It could be could offshore of the yeah. USA, pointed out and doing nothing. But you just know? that they're they're kind of waiting and ready. Like we could intervene if anything goes on here, but we all right. I mean, and, you know, he even yeah. says that that was always the policy. You know, the policy was never non-interventionism. The policy was always, for example, in the world wars. When it seemed like one side was winning, we intervene, which is really not right about you know, the first uh, first world war. Right. But maybe it is right that House and, and Wilson thought so. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, they didn't they didn't want to see any one power, especially the Germans, dominate all of Europe and so but only late in both did they enter the war to tip the balance in the favor they wanted uh, so yeah I mean and you know so here's the thing too is I was really thinking a lot about this while I'm reading this book because a big part of his whole take is that all of these foreign policy professionals mean well they're all a bunch of good guys they're all a bunch of decent people and they all have grand strategies too like he has a grand strategy and in his grand strategy, you know, it seems like he really only ever wants to kill people as an absolute last resort. Whereas to these other people, you know, yeah, they figure that sometimes you just start wars to make things the way that you want them to be. And this is acceptable. And so, you know, and then the idea is, though, that so where lies evil in here? Is it just in the banality? Because it's a lot easier for me to say, no, Richard Pearl is the prince of darkness that's what they call him i didn't name him that they call him that because he's a sick evil horrible murderer of a bastard who of course would never 
you know, dare to pick up a knife and go fight himself somewhere, uh, pick up a gun and go take point on some patrol, was perfectly happy to start wars and see other people die. And see, I'm so glad that I said Richard Pearl, because that reminded me of a thing that I even wrote it down so I wouldn't forget, and then I did anyway. Uh, but then I remembered again. And that is that half a year into the war, a year later, James Risen ran a piece in the New York Times about how Richard Pearl had met with Saddam Hussein's representative, very powerful Iraqi businessman or minister, whatever it was, in London. So this would have been about six months before the war started. And this guy completely surrendered on behalf of Saddam Hussein. He said, and, and this will go to tell you what liars these horrible people were who pushed us into this war. Saddam didn't even know what they were mad about. So the way that the offer came was, look, man, whatever it is that you're mad about, I'll do whatever you want. If, it's, if you're really concerned about that old nuclear program or any chemical weapons, you can send in the army. Send in, this is real, send in the army, send in the CIA, send in the FBI, and let them look around and do whatever they want. Forget the UN inspectors. Send your best guys, and you can have everything. You can go anywhere. Then he said... If this is about oil, you can have it, man. We can discuss mineral rights. You know, whatever you got. We know your guys from back in the 80s when we were friends. We'll talk again. We'll work this out. We'll do an oil thing. He said, if this is about Israel, I swear to God, I will stop funding Hamas, which was, you know, the scandal was. And I think this was really part of the neocons motivation, too. It drove them crazy. That, And this is something that, you know... Regular American, soon-to-be infantry, wouldn't know or, or care that much about, really. And that was that Saddam paid a, kind of an insurance policy-type uh, payment to the family of any Palestinian who died in conflict with the Israelis, very broadly defined, and that included suicide bombers. He would pay their families. And so, not that there were that many, you know, there was a Hamas suicide bombing campaign in the second intifada. But it wasn't this ongoing extensive thing after that. I mean, I guess there were a few, but but seriously, a few. Not dozens and dozens and dozens or scores or hundreds or anything like that. It wasn't like this ongoing massive thing. But he did that. And so <clears throat> that was one of the things that they absolutely hated about him too. And um, so he's, you know, I'll totally knock off all of that stuff. And he said, if this is really about democracy, Saddam Hussein sent his government say this, this is really about democracy, we'll hold elections. Free and fair elections will have, you know, other powers come in and monitor the things. And I really don't want to fight you guys. And, you know, it came out later from his military interrogator said, and there were other, you know, testimonies from other people inside the highest levels of his government. He was basically retired at that point. He was writing a romance novel. He had his ministers running the government. He didn't think war was going to come because he knew he hadn't done anything. He thought George Bush was just BSing around. He had told his men, and I love this because you always hear this, well, Saddam was pretending he had weapons of mass destruction, you know, to look tough in front of the Iranians. Oh, really, huh? That's funny because actually he gave up a 12,000-page dossier to the U.N., called i'm not guilty i didn't do anything i swear <laughs> here's everything that was the official title of it no but close 
<laughs> and it was 12,000 pages Rough about here's all Reagan ever bought us from the French and, and how we shot it all at the Iranians like he asked us to. And it's all gone. <laughs> you know, y'all blew up the change after Iraq War One, and that's it. And And listen... You could even find to this day the Fox News headline where they admit it against interest that turns out Iraq made no weapons of mass destruction after 1991. None. And, and uh, you know what? I'll, let me say this too, and I'll, I'll say it real fast. There's a famous New York Times article that got sent around all over the place. And, you know, everybody's right-wing uncle forwarded this. And it was, oh my God, look, see, they did found find uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, all these chemical weapons, and George Bush was right, although, geez, we don't know why he didn't say so, and all you stupid hippies were wrong, and so therefore the war was justified, and all this. But if you actually read the article itself, it says, no, dummy, you're wrong, that's not right at all. It says that what they found, and what in some cases sickened American GIs who found them, were old duds left over in the desert. They had nothing to do with uh, weapons of mass destruction program activities, as George Bush would try to claim. Um, they had nothing to do with anything. They were all leftover junk from the Ronald Reagan era, when Saddam Hussein worked for the U.S., when Saddam Hussein committed all of his worst crimes, the Anfal campaign against the Kurds, and the war against Iran was when he was America's guy. And all those weapons were from that era. Bush, I mean, Reagan and Bush uh, Sr. bought them for him. And it was the British and the French, and I think the Germans, I forget now, who supplied the, the weapons to him. And um, and then, so most of them, uh, as I said, were you know actually shot at the Iranians or the Kurds, mostly the Iranians, during the war. There was a bunker called Kamasiya that American GIs blew up after Iraq War One that got a lot of them sick. Um, but then whatever was left that they talk about in this New York Times article, if you go through, there's like seven important paragraphs that explain the context of this, that none of this has anything to do with what George W. Bush claimed was that Saddam had an active nuclear weapons program, that he had an active chemical and biological weapons program. Mobile biological weapons laboratories that could drive all around out in the desert where you can't find them and make secret germs for germ warfare. Uh, remote controlled drones that can fly across the Atlantic Ocean and spray the East Coast. Get duct tape and plastic to protect your house because Saddam is going to help Osama fly remote control planes from Mesopotamia. Don't break out your atlas. <laughs> Just believe me, okay? And then... Um, it's like people have atlases. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, it was a long time ago. They might have had them. Yeah. And then warehouses full of sarin, VX, mustard gas, all of this stuff. It's all there. We know it's there. Chalabi says so, and so it's on. And um, you didn't finish your the pearl quote. I think. Oh, I which, think Oh, and so, oh, yeah. you're right. And the Pearl Star. So the guy surrendered on everything. Thank you. The guy surrendered on everything on Saddam's behalf. And Richard Pearl told him, tell Saddam, we'll see you in Baghdad. And that was like six months before the war started. And, you know, they had at the time, they had Naji Sabri was one. And they had a guy named Habush was the second. And they were both CIA 
informants inside the highest levels of the Saddam Hussein government who verified time and again, top to bottom, we have nothing. We're not friends with Osama. We're not helping Al-Qaeda in any way. And we have no weapons. We got rid of it all. And, you know, I talked on the show to Scott Ritter back before, you know, he was finally really disgraced. Um, where, you know, and, and I knew I interviewed him numerous times about this. And he talked about being the he was the famous weapons inspector in the 1990s. And he talked about how the U.N. that Saddam had actually lied and had kept some mustard gas after the initial end of Iraq War One in 1991 and he tried to get away with it but he got caught they caught him the UN caught him or maybe the Americans caught him and then that was it and they destroyed all the rest of it and it was all destroyed by the end of 1991 and that the UN weapons inspectors and the CIA and all the rest of them knew it for a fact by 1995 that it was all gone and um, and so you know as as Ray McGovern, who's you know now we know him so well, he's you know such a good friend and all this stuff. Um, but back then he was you know nobody really knew who he was, but he was leading this group, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, and saying, "Now, pardon, some of us have actually you know didn't just start becoming interested in foreign policy on September 12th, but you know knows a little something about this." And if Saddam has all these weapons, where the hell did he get them? Because we know he didn't make them. Because we know what he has. We know what his factory's ability to make this stuff is left over from then. And it's nada. You know, all that stuff was dismantled. So, um, you're lying. And in fact, right around now is the anniversary of the Dick Cheney speech at the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Where Dick Cheney has the audacity to go to the Veterans of Foreign Wars. And uh, who are the guys who, you know, overall... Uh, generally speaking, are the ones sending their sons and their grandsons off to fight in this one for him. And he's lying right to their face. So, Dom, we fear, he is, or we have reason to believe, we have intelligence that says that he has reconstituted his nuclear weapons capability. He's making nuclear weapons. He may already have some. And he has all this stuff. And Ray McGovern has told the story about how he heard that and he was like, oh man, you're such a liar. I know that's not true. You know, anybody who knew a CIA guy knew that that wasn't true. But, um, you know, that was the party line. That was it. And and they pushed it. I'm not trying to acquit the CIA because they were behind the aluminum tubes lie, their windpack mm-hmm. group. And, um, and, you know, they vetted all the, uh, you know, they tortured a bunch of, Iraq, uh, Al Qaeda lies out of innocent people and put that in the Colin Powell speech. Uh, they had a lot of bad stuff there. Um, but you know, they weren't quite bad enough. And so at the Pentagon, I talked about before Fife's Gestapo office, the office of special plans. And there you had Abram Shulsky and Michael Rubin and Michael Ledeen and all of these cranks in there churning out, basically picking through the CIA's trash and taking, you know, jotting down exiles claims and pretending that this was all intelligence about weapons of mass destruction. And then they had, um, it was Michael Maloof, and uh, I guess Fife himself across the hall had a separate group that was the counter-policy terrorism evaluation group. Like, the words were all out of order for some reason. I don't know. But it was like it was supposed to be the counter-terrorism policy evaluation group. And 
and in there they you know came up with uh, all the you know helpful additional lies about Saddam and Osama and their relationship but eventually that mostly came down to the claims of Sheikh Alibi and Abu Zubaydah both of whom were tortured by the CIA into making claims about Iraq right yeah i want to go back to um the the Richard Pearl offer that you or the Saddam offer to Richard Pearl at the time, is it that that offer wasn't communicated broader than than him, or do we do we know uh, like so we know he rejected it because he had his reasons, but you know I remember hearing the uh, the Goldman interview you had recently that was you know it was mostly about Russia and part of it was about Israel, but one piece that he said that kind of stuck with me from that was that you know he really thought that a lot of the neocons were essentially true believers and that they really did think of you know American power as a, a force for good and the ability to create democracy and this sort of thing. And so, it, you know, when you hear that and then you think of them offering, oh, you know, we'll have free and fair elections, we'll give you oil. It sounds like you could cross off a lot of boxes on the, you know, neocon true believer uh, checklist if if that's really their interest. So do we understand how it, it was it just, you know, Pearl cut it off at that point or the whole government was already in motion. And so you can't, you gotta, you already have the momentum and can't stop the train or do you, do we know more about that? Well, so first of all, the article is, um, uh, as I said, the fall of 03, November, 2003, the struggle for Iraq, Iraq said to have tried to reach last minute deal to avert war. And in there, it's James Risen, and he talks with Pearl in the article. And Pearl says, I was dubious that this would work, but I agreed to talk to people in Washington. Uh, Mr. Pearl said he sought authorization from CIA to meet with the guy in the first place. They told him they didn't want to pursue this channel, and they already had separate contacts. Mr. Pearl's, uh, it's Pearl's quote to Risen. The message was, tell them we'll see them in Baghdad. Man, I remember the first time I read that, too. Oh, God. These bastards. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting how, you know, sanitized the language is. When they say, we'll see them in Baghdad, that means we are going to drop tons of explosives on a lot of people that are got nothing to do with any of this. Right. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we're grabbing coffee in Baghdad. No, no, no. You're murdering a bunch of people and turning an entire country upside down. That's what you mean. Yep. But you don't have the balls to say it. Yeah, of course, Richard Pearl wouldn't be, you know, a thousand miles from there. Oh, well, sure. Of course 500 not. anyway. I guess you can find him in Cairo from time to time or something. Tel Aviv. Yeah. Gosh. It's unbelievable. But yeah. So listen, um, there's um, there's a, a thingamajig I did on Twitter one day and uh, Dan Sanchez made a medium thingy out of it. And it got reposted here or there. I don't know, man. But you can find it if you search my name. And um, 16 articles, Scott Horton, 16 articles about how they lied us into Iraq. And I have a lot of really great stuff for you to read there um, about the neocons and how they did this. And then I have no idea why this never clicked in my head. It's like on a parallel set of neurons that never talk to each other or something. But of course, one of the most important of these would be the Israel lobby and U.S. foreign policy by Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer, which, again, they're not as radical as me, but boy, are they good at doing scholarly stuff. And uh, it's a great take. And they have a lot. And as they put it, the war probably couldn't have happened without the neocons. 
And they are really the Israel lobby. They're the vanguard movement of the Israel lobby, you know, the the ones who who get the deputy assistant secretary job and then get it done. Right. Well, and and I think you you also did. We could also put a link up to uh, I think you did an interview on Tom Woods' show where you kind of walked through. A lot of this material. Oh, that's as well. true. Yeah, if you up. search my name and Tom Woods' name in Iraq, there's a couple that are sort of the same, but I think there's one that one or two that are kind of different on this too. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, and, and yeah. for any of the other, we'll probably wrap it up there because um, I know we always try to keep it shorter to make sure we don't, uh, you know, people still want to listen the whole time. But right. we're not successful, and that's okay. Uh, we didn't get to all the questions in the uh, the Reddit group, so. Um, Folks in there, if you're listening, we'll, we will get to them. Oh, the Cobar next... Towers. That was yeah. that was Al-Qaeda. It's in my book. I got the footnotes. And Warren Christopher says so. And Gareth Porter says so. And Michael Scheuer, I think before he completely sprang a leak, uh, said so. Um, and But I will say that um, uh, the lady... God, I just had her name on the tip of my tongue. Cynthia Storr. Cynthia Storr. Thanks. See, Eric, you know. Uh, Cynthia Store, the CIA lady that I talked to um, about, uh, well, what did we talk about? We talked about Sebastian Gorka, but we, yeah, we, we talked about how many at the beginning of the interview, we talked about how many Al Qaeda were in Afghanistan. She's my footnote. She's the first footnote in my book for that uh, 400 Al Qaeda guys uh, with Osama in Afghanistan at the time of 9-11. But anyway. She said that, well, it's true that Al-Qaeda did the Kobar Towers, but it also is true that Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah did it, uh, that they both did it together. And you know what? I just, I don't know, man. And then I says, oh, yeah, well, so tell me about it. And she says, I can. It's a secret, you know. So, okay, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> I guess, whatever, I, it could be, but it... uh it does. It's still, I guess, even if that's true, it doesn't ruin my narrative, which is think of how important it might have been for people to realize that it was Osama bin Laden, the Saudi radical who keeps saying, get your airmen off my peninsula that had bombed the building full of airmen. Now, that was never told, you know, by blaming Iran almost entirely, you know, consider her like coming back my way a little bit on that. But by blaming Iran at the time, uh, publicly, um, that completely deprived the American people of access to a very simple and important narrative, which is, are you sure we really need to stay in Saudi? You know, maybe we don't. Maybe we just lost 19 guys and now we're realizing that, well, this is a friendly state. You know, it's not like we've invaded and this is our beachhead. This is a friendly country. We whoop Saddam's ass. We don't, they don't need us to protect him anymore. We can go back to offshore balancing now. We could have had that conversation if they hadn't lied about uh, or told only that side of the story, if it's true, that, that it was Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah that did it, which just is like pouring mud in clear water, you know? So I don't know, man. That's my take on that. But read Gareth Porter because he's the man, man. Sounds good. Well, um, Scott, do you have anything else to say before we, you know, wrap up for this week? Yeah, just sorry everybody that I didn't get to all of your stuff. That's all right. But Fair you to know give how a, I am with, with the talking and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll we'll definitely keep the list in mind for next week, and we'll 
yeah, keep on working through them. All right, good deal, man. Thanks for everybody for submitting things. Yeah, dude. Well, uh, good to talk to you as always, Eric. Thanks a lot for doing this with me, man. Yeah, sounds good. We'll see you next week. See you guys. Oh, yeah, and also support all my sponsors and stuff. Um, They're all at scotthorton.org, and they include uh, The War State Book by Mike Swanson, and also No Dev, No Ops, No IT, which is a great book about how to run your tech business like a libertarian. I read it, and it's good, and I don't even run a tech business, but I am a libertarian. And it's really good. No dev, no ops, no IT. And then also Kesslin Runs, which is this new dystopian novel by Charles Featherstone. Remember him? Friend of the show. Used to live in Saudi and knows all kinds of stuff. Oh, he's a Christian minister. And um, and so he's uh, all educated on all the kind of end time Zionism and all that kind of cool stuff, too. Um, anyway, he wrote this great dystopian novel, Kesslin Runs, by Charles Featherstone. You can find that on Amazon.com. And then uh, I said the worst state by Mike Swanson, but he also does investment advice at WallStreetWindow.com. He's smart. It's good stuff. I read those emails. I really do. I really should interview him about that stuff more often and, you know, learn more. Um, but it is really good stuff. Uh, sign up at the War state. I mean, nope, that's the book. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com. Uh, and then um, so the bumpersticker.com. Of course, I used to be my company and still supports the show after all this time. Uh, Rick McGinnis over there does great work at thebumpersticker.com for your your band or your business or whatever you want, custom stuff. Uh, Check them out at thebumpersticker.com. And Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. If you're a libertarian, then that means you're into metals. So you buy your metals from this guy. Uh, These guys. And they've been in business for longer than I've been alive, too. And they do great work and they charge a very low premium. And if you buy your precious metals in Bitcoin, there's no service charge. Because I guess they're bullish on Bitcoin. So check them out at rrbi.co. rrbi.co. And uh, so now I'm panicking a little bit thinking of who I'm not thinking of. Tom Woods. Tom Woods Liberty oh, Classroom. Yeah. Tom, Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. That's a good one. Commission-based type thing. And uh, my book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And you get the audio book, too. So, uh, yeah. And Anybody else? Zencash, too, right? Oh, here. oh Zencash. Jeez. You know what? Man, I need to call them, too. Uh, Zensystem.io or Zencash.com. Uh, it's not just a digital currency, see? It's also um, a uh, very secure messaging system and document transfer system as well. Uh, check out all about that. And it's, it's unlike, uh, I don't know all the technical details, really, but... It's unlike some of these more open blockchains. It's like a top secret blockchain that it, it it's proven, and yet at the same time, uh, everything's hidden as to who's doing what and what everything is in some kind of ones and zeros sort of way. But you can learn all about it at zensystem.io or zencash.com there. Um, and so, yeah. Oh, and, and if you need a new website, expanddesigns.com slash Scott, and uh, they will hook you up and save you $500. If you go to expanddesigns.com slash Scott. So I should say that too. All right. That's good. So now thanks again, Eric. Yeah. No problem. See you next week.